0: Hey, and welcome. It's PNN. I am your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, July 4, 2021. Happy Independence Day. Woohoo! Fireworks, boom, boom, blah, blah. All right. Um, I'm going to get right to it. We have a show for you. We'll just call it a show. Uh, Janine Moloff has a really good piece on Exxon and fossil fuel uh, industry lies. And I go over all of the crazy shit that went down this week Um, and then I've got a a thing I want you to know about uh, COVID-19 discourse uh, piece that Matt Taibbi did that came out on Friday I share that with you uh, in the second segment of the program so we are just going to get right down into it let's go Right now, uh, we have a fire in the Gulf of Mexico and a fire in the Caspian Sea. So the fire in the Gulf Gulf of Mexico started yesterday from a, um, oil rig out there in the water, uh, oil rig that is tied to the Mexican government. And so the ocean is on fire in the Gulf of Mexico. Same thing right now in the Caspian Sea. A pipeline has bust and the ocean is on fire out there. So something remarkably on two separate sides of the globe have has decided to go wacky and twist open these uh these these pipelines uh to the degree where they're on fire in the ocean and remarkably or not remarkably uh you had uh boats circling the fire in the middle of the gulf of mexico trying to put out the fire with you guessed it water um i don't know what to say to some people sometimes but you know there it is uh we are going to talk more about these uh fossil fuel problems in uh, later with the uh justice report and uh you know there's just a lot there's a lot on fire and there's a lot exploding this week Some form of recognition for that, I I suppose. Um, Also this week in explosive news, we had the Los Angeles Police Department bombing a neighborhood when they uh, confiscated a bunch of fireworks from someone, I suppose, who lived in the neighborhood. And uh, they were going to take it to their special A vehicle to blow up I guess they have a vehicle that they blow stuff up in and and something went wrong and what do you know they bombed a neighborhood with all of these explosives now I didn't quite understand how dramatic this was until I started seeing the Damage done to houses. So, this is damage done to houses surrounding the area where they blew up uh, these fireworks. And these houses had their ceilings fall in, uh, load bearing uh, uh, walls crash down, uh, all windows burst out, you know, everything like blown off of the walls. Like, this is a lot of damage and a big concussive. Uh, Uh, situation that they had in the middle of a neighborhood of a working class neighborhood. They like, they couldn't drive it further out, you know, to the airport or someplace where there's less people around. Now the news coming out of this incident has been just shameful because over and over the news media has been saying that the uh, explosion was the fault of the person who the fireworks were confiscated from instead of you know placing the blame on LAPD which clearly they were the ones who decided to go to the neighborhood and you know try to dispose of the uh, fireworks in that manner but no they kept trying to twist the story around so that it was the it, it was the uh, fireworks um, purveyor who was who was at fault and that is just that is just clear clearly wrong um, I've seen this over and over again with Los Angeles media there must be some kind of understanding between the police department and media because they are probably the most obsequious of all media when it comes to reporting on their police department they're just terrible also this week uh we found out that um in the infrastructure deal that janine has talked about on the show uh which is actually a big privatization giveaway one of the uh Items on the block for sale is the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA, which um, you might be aware it, it has it, during the New Deal built all of these dams and brought hydroelectric power to the mountains, brought electric power to places that had never had electricity before. Where I used to live in East Tennessee. Uh, t v a pretty much i don't wanna overstate it, but the t v a pretty much civilized the uh uh hill country up there uh as as late as the forties people didn't have electricity uh so this this was a big deal and uh as you know part of this big infrastructure deal which um might not go through Because, you know, I guess it won't sufficiently uh, sell off enough assets for Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema. So it, it might not go through. And as far as I'm concerned, that'd be a good thing. And I think it's really problematic. Right now, it is so obviously problematic how people were saying, oh, Joe Biden is going to be the next uh, FDR, you know, this is going to be our generation's FDR. Now, that was clearly bullshit when they were saying it. You know, and let's be clear. These were media personalities who thought that, you know, this was the uh, um, narrative that they wanted to go with or or probably more. Precisely, this was what they were told to go with by Biden's people, that he was to be the next FDR. But I can pretty much assure you that FDR would have absolutely nothing to do with uh, privatizing the resources such as TVA, which have um, been held in the commons and done so much for the public good in building a uh, civilized and uh, dignified uh, U.S., for all Americans, not just those who are live on the coast and are part of elite uh communities, but everyone and the t v a really represents that for me and um and i 'm not alone in that it 's seen that way for a lot of people uh, so uh, let 's not let 's not see that come to fruition also this week, we found out that kamala harris 's uh, vice president's office in the white house is uh, not a healthy place to work. This was reported in Politico this week in an article entitled not a healthy environment. Kamala Harris's office is rife with dissent. There is dysfunction in the VP's office, AIDS and administration officials say, and it's emanating from the top. Now, It should come as no surprise that uh, that the office of Kamala Harris, that the that that her actual, you know, working environment, it should come as no surprise that that's toxic, seeing as how the public face of Kamala Harris for, you all these couple of years has been K-Hive, which is some of the most uh, toxic people on the Internet. Now of course all of this has a uh, a a common source. Uh Kamala Harris was uh Hillary Clinton's campaign uh, uh surrogates. So, you know, these these were Clinton campaign people that were working with Kamala Harris before she was on the ticket and then this was The Clinton people's way into the back door of the White House was through Kamala Harris's uh, uh, presence. So with uh, uh, Biden and Harris, you have uh, you have old Clinton people and you have old Obama people. So there's this war that has been going on for a while. Uh you know all the way going all the way back to um to 2008 if not before. And uh and it's being played out within you know these these toxic environments. And so the story in Politico this week says um uh well much of the ire is it is aimed at Kamala Harris's uh, chief of staff. Two administration officials said the VP herself bears responsibility for the way her office is run. It all starts at the top, said this anonymous source. Um, And that Politico very kindly said requested anonymity to be able to speak candidly about a sensitive matter. Um, But they go on. Uh, quote, people are thrown under the bus from the very top. There are very short fuses, and it is an abusive environment. Uh, Another person said, it's not a healthy environment, and people feel mistreated. It's not a place where people feel supported, but a place where people feel like they're treated like shit. (laughs) Um, So yeah, this this comes as no surprise. Uh, Kamala Harris's campaign... uh, online was a beefed up version of the correct the record um uh, david brock's correct the record um kind of operation and it was run by a, uh, a a troll who goes by the name of bravenack online and uh i'm familiar with bravenack from way back in the days of democratic underground and uh have seeing her over the years get kicked off a of Daily Cose for anti Semitism. And I saw her try to do a false flag on DU. This is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. But she sent herself a letter that was threatening violence, and she signed it a Bernie supporter, and then shared it on DU, and we were all supposed to believe that you know some unnamed Bernie supporter was um, so enraged at this you know internet troll that they found her address and sent her a letter um, to tell her about how much they don't like her, like none of it made any sense but the way that she got caught was she was in Florida on vacation which she had told everybody she was in Florida on vacation and the the letter actually came from where she said she was vacationing in the Tampa Bay area and so when she shared the letter on DU she also shared the envelope so that you could see uh you know the return address like as if someone would you know put a, a bernie supporter at my address come get me um but what was interesting was was the postmark because the postmark was clearly from where she had just been in florida her residence at the time i think it probably still is is in alaska and uh, and also interesting the way that she shared the photograph was through one of those like photo bucket kind of accounts. And um, instead of connecting just to the actual image, she connected to her whole photo bucket account, which was full of all of these pictures of a living environment that I was just terrified by. Like, is what you saw were these pictures of you know these darkened rooms covered every inch covered with like empty food containers and dirty clothes and bongs and babies and this is the this, this is a portrait of a person who is not well this is a portrait what you saw in those photographs was just some something that Needed attention. This was somebody who needed some attention, somebody who needed some support, and you know, somebody that you know, any reasonable person <clears throat> would say, you know, let's let's give them some space to you know get their lives together. Now, instead of doing that, uh, what happened was this particular person uh, was empowered. And she kept getting empowered by the powers that be uh, with these legacy forums that she was frequenting. So there was the, you know, power people at Daily Co's and the power people at DU. They kept empowering her and kept lifting her up. And so she became, she has branded herself the Queen of K-Hive. Now, I bring this up because this week... Tara Reid has filed a lawsuit against Sally Albright. Uh, Tara Reid was the uh, Senate aide for Joe Biden's office. Um, And she has recounted a story over and over again where she was uh, sexually assaulted by Joe Biden back in the back in the day, back in the in the 90s when she was working in his office and then how she was hounded out of D.C. So here is a very young person who is in their very first like real job situation, had hoped to find a career doing something related to public policy uh the kind of things that she had studied for in college and she found herself after being sexually assaulted allegedly by uh joe biden uh, she found herself hounded out of dc so she couldn't get a job she couldn't you know stay in the position that she was at you know once everybody knew that this had happened and that she had rebuffed him that she had rebuffed him then that made her a threat so you know appreciate for a second that if she hadn't rebuffed him would she have still been a threat if she hadn't rebuffed him? Because I think if she hadn't rebuffed him, she would still have been a threat at some point. It just would have put it off for a little while. So once a woman is sexually assaulted in these corridors of power, you're through. It doesn't, you don't have a right move. You can't say no and you can't say yes. You were just through the moment that he lays eyes on you. Now, Tara Reid wrote a book about all of this situation. And Sally Albright thought that it would be a really fun thing to do to uh, download the book and then tweet it out to her following. And also have people read it aloud, start to finish on Facebook Live. Uh, so, maybe that wouldn't have been such a big deal, but she sent it out specifically, maliciously with tweets that say, Let's make sure that Tara Reed doesn't get any money from selling this book, and we make sure that everybody gets the book uh you know, through downloading this PDF." So that shows a malicious uh, copyright infringement. And Tara Reid is suing Sally Albright for copyright infringement. And it's, you know, a pretty basic case. Now, the way that this relates to k and the way that this relates to Bravenack is because one of the John Doe's in the court case is actually Bravenack. Here, I'll read it to you. In the part of the complaint where it is setting out the parties, it says plaintiff Alexandra Tara Reid received a torrent of abuse after she came forward publicly in late 2019 regarding sexual harassment and sexual assault from now President Joe Biden in 1993. Sally Albright is a party to this. She styles herself as a Democratic Party activist and resides in D.C., John Doe number one is known as at House is Borgia on Twitter. John Doe number two is referred to as Kevin in the infringing Facebook live reading of the book. John Doe number three is known as at Real K Hive Queen Bee on Twitter. Now that is Brave Neck, and that is not doxing anyone because that is how Brave Neck Markets herself. If you go to her LinkedIn page, uh, Bianca Della Rosa LinkedIn. So it's LinkedIn backslash Bianca dash Della Rosa dash Real K Hive Queen B. She also has a political action committee uh under that name she runs a blog uh just so on and so forth um so she is a john doe in this um lawsuit and i think that you know she could actually people could go a little bit further and um actually talk about who she is you know thing i found out uh by looking at uh Bianca Dalla Rosa's uh, webpage or LinkedIn page here is that prior to being elevated to um, a spokesperson for the freaking Democratic Party, she had been an administrative assistant and payroll administrator for Trailboss Enterprises Incorporated. She had been promoted to payroll administrator after 15 months of employment. She successfully planned and executed corporate meetings, lunches, and special events for groups of twenty or more employees. Uh, she maintained employee records and payroll and HR file. Can you imagine this person with uh, you know having access to people's? Uh, HR files you know this is somebody who is known to dox people on the internet and it's just like one of the worst trolls in the history of trolling I mean the just the the whole thing cracks me up but so you know props to her for you know going from payroll administrator to being a uh, a brand onto herself of the most toxic and awful uh, aspects of online life. Congratulations to Bianca Della Rosa, Bravneck. You uh, you have uh, achieved apotheosis. And uh, Godspeed to Tara Reed. I hope that everything goes well with her lawsuit, and these people are forced to pay what what they owe you. Also this week, 24 are dead, 121 missing, and uh, they are demolishing the rest of the building in the condo collapse in Surfside, Florida. That is the Chamberlain uh, condominiums, uh, a rather working class uh, set of apartment towers on miami beach and i know a lot of people think of miami beach as being very tony but i can tell you from what i see of the um the real estate value and you know what it looks like with the the kind of families that have been coming forward to talk about their experience the survivors uh this this is fairly working class stuff so a unit in there was you know pretty much going for about six hundred thousand dollars. That sounds like a lot to me in in Orlando, but if you have to be down in the thick of things in Miami, that's about how much you're going to pay. Otherwise you were going to have an hour and a half commute. So that's that trade off that people always have. This was not a fancy place in you know, Miami Beach is cool and it's cool to live on the beach, but this was not a, fa- a fancy place. And believe me, I grew up on the beach where there were just tons of people living in very not fancy uh, kinds of environments. So, anyway, there are still 121 people missing and they are demolishing the rest of the building. They've uh, delayed the search for recovery of of bodies and at this point i'm starting to wonder if they are going to get if they're actually ever going to get everyone identified and um pulled out of there it looks to me like a big pile of dust it doesn't look like there's a lot left of that rubble um but you know Here we go. We are going to find out more. It's going to take a lot of time. And in the interim, there is a lot of discussion about building codes and, uh, you know, whether or not uh, HOAs in uh, especially condo HOAs, which are basically, you know, volunteer type of operations, whether they have the power that they actually need to enforce the kind of um, expenditures that that they need so one of the things that has been flagged on this building was there was a leak under the pool that was going under the um, parking garage and that this had been ongoing for a very long time and so there is a theory that that could have uh, eroded the land out from underneath of the condo and that could have been what made it collapse well they knew that the repair on the pool and the repair on the concrete and the rebar and everything having to do with the foundation of the building they knew that that was a multi multi-million dollar uh, project and they had trouble pushing that kind of expenditure through the HOA Because can you imagine you live in a building, a giant condo, and there's how many, like 300 uh, units, maybe, maybe, maybe 100, maybe 200, however many it is. And you have a multi-million dollar expenditure that is absolutely needed, um, but could be easily hidden, you know, just isn't out in plain sight. It can be pawned off to the next hoa it can be pawned off to the next one you know you elect them so you know if it isn't done on your watch it'll be done on the next person's watch and that's what it did they they just kept passing the buck now this is a problem because obviously uh people in condos everywhere always are needing these kinds of repairs and uh I know my aunt and uncle. My my uncle was the uh, president of his HOA at a building in that they lived in in Knoxville, and uh, it was absolutely the least expensive place you could live in a fairly nice neighborhood. You know, it was like one of those things, a kind of place you might like uh, live in as a retiree with no kids and no pets, and he took on the task because he is a, a brilliant engineer, you know, like one of these kind of guys. And he's a, he's a no bullshit kind of guy. And he got in there and he knew that the building had a lot, uh, had a lot of need for a lot of repairs that were going to cost a lot. Uh, things having to do with the roof, things having to do with the HVAC. And he got into that position because he knew nobody else would actually push through those repairs (laughs) that's the kind of guy he is actually that's the kind of stock that i come from you know that when you see that nobody else is doing what they need to be doing that's generally when you step in and that's and that's what he did and the moral to that story is they uh they increased their fees and they got the repairs done and he did it in the smartest best way that he could and uh their building is still standing uh as opposed to the building in miami beach so there is some sort of intervention that needs to happen here i think uh that isn't local to florida you know it pertains to hoas and people in condos everywhere so we'll be keeping an eye on this also, this week, Julian Assange turned fifty in Belmarsh Prison. This week, as we learned, that the lead witness in the case against Julian Assange was lying through his teeth uh, in order to cut a deal with prosecutors. Uh, not only that, uh, he was—he uh, is accused of assaulting underage kids sexually. So uh, key accusations in the case against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who faces up to 175 years in prison, uh, are reportedly based on testimony from a convicted fraudster who admitted to the media he is lying. Um, Sigidor Inge Thordson, and is Icelandic citizen and former WikiLeaks volunteer who became an FBI informant for $5,000 has admitted to Icelandic newspaper student that he fabricated important parts of the accusations in the indictment. The newspaper points out that even though a court in London has refused to extradite Assange to the U.S. on humanitarian grounds, it's still sided with the U.S. when it came to claims based on Thorson's now denied testimony. So Assange is currently in Belmarsh, uh, not for the violation of any U.K. law, but over extradition to the U.S. for his work carried out um, in the U.K. at the invitation of The Guardian and published in numerous leading newspapers worldwide. In the U.S., Assange could face a sentence up to 175 years if he were extradited, but the U.K. has already said that it would be a uh, inhumane to extradite someone to the u.s where our prisons are so terrible that they pose a humanitarian threat so just appreciate that for a moment in response to this news of the case falling apart against julian assange uh, edward snowden tweeted out this is the end of the case against julian assange and uh we shall see i certainly hope it will be the end of it He deserves to be with his family at this point. It has just been sickening to watch this political prosecution go on and on, and especially watching the silence from the media all over the world, which had benefited from his uh, publishing. And finally, this week, Joe Biden would like us all to unmask and go out and see the fireworks and attend a baseball game and go shopping at the grocery store without a mask and do all this stuff because America is back, baby. And they put out this ridiculous uh, bunch of propaganda that says due to. Joe Biden's leadership, you can now save 16 cents on the things that you would buy on a whole dinner you would buy and make for the 4th of July. I don't even know what to say about this grotesquerie that we are watching here with Joe Biden. This is Trump level uh, propaganda. This is not the kind of thing that I would expect from people who spent the last couple of years jumping up and down and saying that, you know, that Trump doesn't d- listen to science and, and that that we have to listen to science and that we have to be safe and that we have to protect each other from COVID all of a sudden to be changing all of that, you know, when we only have about 50% of the population vaccinated, we don't have her- herd immunity and we have all these new variants popping up. I think I think this is just me, but I think it's irresponsible to tell people to go out there and, you know, have at it at this point, do what you think is best for you. But I don't think that going to a baseball game or, um, you know, shopping without a mask or any of that. I don't think that that's the right decision for me. And I'm very upset that, um, that the leadership in this country is going with that kind of messaging and marketing that to the American people. I think it's very destructive. And that's it for the weekly roundup. We will be right back with more stuff on PNN. Okay, real quick, I just want to share this uh, story that Matt Taibbi did. Uh, yesterday, this, this came across the Substack stack uh, Late on Friday, it's entitled A Case of Intellectual Capture on YouTube's demonetization of Brett Weinstein. YouTube's use of government guidelines to regulate speech raises some serious questions, both about the First Amendment and regulatory capture. Now, this story... Follows on a lot of reporting that Taibbi has done in the last week or two on some of the censorship and suppression issues surrounding COVID and surrounding people who are working in critical care and um, trying to keep people from dying from from COVID. And so there was the issue of ivermectin and then there was. And then there was the lab leak. And then there's just been all of these different facets of COVID that have been verboten, that you just couldn't talk about. And so right now we've got uh, this one character, person. uh, He's an evolutionary biologist, does a show on, or did a show on YouTube. His name is Brett Weinstein. He's related to Eric Weinstein, that it is... His brother is more famous for intellectual dark web stuff. Um, As far as I can tell, Brett is the smarter um, brother of the two. (laughs) I don't care that much for Eric's stuff, but that's just me. Um, And I think that Brett has been kind of lumped in with his brother's branding. His brother's been more out there and more forward with the – intellectual dark web stuff, but the show that he does on with his wife, Heather Hying, Haying, uh, is called Dark Horse, and they have two YouTube channels, a main one and then a clips one, and between the two channels, they've been flagged 11 times in the last month or so. Specifically, uh, YouTube honed in on two areas of discussion it believes promote medical misinformation. The first is the potential efficacy of ivermectin. And the second is, uh, Taibbi says, the third rail of third rails, i.e. the possible shortcomings of the mRNA vaccines produced by companies like Moderna and Pfizer. Now, I watched some of these uh, episodes where they were talking about the uh, vaccines and they had the inventor of the mRNA vaccine a vaccine on at the time and they were just you know kind of having a a roundtable discussion about what we know about the vaccine what we know about efficacy what we know about uh you know whether or not there can be breakthrough infections and so on and so forth that that kind of thing is a table of three scientists talking about science stuff which by the way If you're going to believe science, that's how science is done. The whole point of science is to test hypotheses, not to believe hypotheses. You know, if you have an idea, you got to go test it you know your idea is the hypothesis you, you've got your theory you got your hypothesis you got to test your hypothesis and then other people have to be able to test your hypothesis and be able to repeat the results in a manner that satisfies everyone so that's basic science scientific method we used to say in school people run hard except on concrete so that's a problem research hypothesis uh, experiment and then conclusion. And you know you reach your conclusion, there should be another one in there after experiment. There needs to be like peer review. Um, but people run hard except on concrete. That's a scientific mef- method uh, in theory. Uh, in practice, you have this whole sociology of science. And now you have to factor in the sociology of media into the sociology of science. And it's become a hell of a lot more convoluted. So yeah, believe science. But What does that mean? That means giving scientists and giving people the space in order to do their actual work recently on the show we've talked about other ways in which people have gone off the rails and uh, believed really stupid stuff that had really bad repercussions and at the time we were talking about uh, the financial crash and we were talking about Russiagate and we found that in both of those instances what led people to Making bad decisions uh, and engaging in bad behaviors that were very detrimental was number one, groupthink, and number two, conflicts of interest. And when you look at what's going on with this discussion around, you know, what can people say or not say about uh, vaccines and about treatments and about efficacy and about uh, infectiousness and all of this stuff. If you're going to say that people can't have a discussion online, and, and 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 you're actually honing in on the scientists even, then you are ensuring that there is going to be groupthink, and you are ensuring that the only people who have the microphone to be able to talk are people who have conflicts of interest, i.e., the companies that are putting out the the particular treatments that have hegemony in this, um, setting. So, when YouTube demonetizes a channel what they are actually asking the proprietor to do is to self censor and what they're what, what's not being spoken here is they are encouraging a form of groupthink, and they're saying that we have a form of right thinking and you have to conform to this right thinking with your broadcasting or else you're not going to broadcast on our channel now a lot of people have said that oh that's just fine because youtube is a private company and a private company can decide what what they want on their airwaves or their digital space or not but here's the thing is youtube a proxy for the u.s government in this particular case Because when you ask YouTube who it is that they are uh, talking to and who is uh, laying the limits and drawing the contours around the acceptable debate, what they say is that they're talking to the government and that the government is drawing the contours around this debate. And that is a real problem for freedom of speech. So YouTube says that it, it is... Receiving guidance on what can be talked about on YouTube. Receiving guidance from the FDA, the CDC, the WHO, and the NHS. Um, and this is where they are developing their COVID-19 mis- misinformation policies. And Taibi writes, the question is, how active is that guidance? Is YouTube acting in consultation with these bodies in developing their moderation pri- policies? As Weinstein notes, an answer in the affirmative would likely make theirs a true First Amendment problem with an agency like the CDC not only setting public health policy, but effectively setting guidelines for private discussion about those policies. If it is in consultation with the government, Weinstein says, it is an entirely different issue. Now, that is very important right there because what the First Amendment actually says is that the government. The government will not create a law and will not interfere with speech, you know. So so that distinction that we used to be able to say, oh, it's okay if a YouTube does it or Facebook does it or Twitter does it, they can censor because they're private entities. But if it's actually the federal government or any government reaching through those private entities to uh, censor speech or to suppress speech or to encourage self-censorship in this case, uh, then that is very clearly a problem. Asked specifically after Weinstein's demonetization if the guidance included consultation with authorities, YouTube essentially said yes, pointing to previous announcements that they consult other authorities, adding, When we develop our policies, we consult outside experts and YouTube creators. In the case of our COVID 19 misinformation policies, it would be guidance from local and global health authorities. That's the government. Weinstein and Haying, I'm sorry, I just keep pronouncing her name wrong, um, might be the most prominent non conservative media operation to fall this afoul of a platform like YouTube. So it's been it's been people like Alex Jones, it's been all these right wing wackos, and so the entire liberal establishment has, you know, stood up and cheered every time a right wing person gets thrown off of a platform or is de- deplatformed. And the whole time you had uh uh people from publishing, you know, that are that are dismissed and and called uh, uh free speech uh fundamentalist or absolutist or whatever but generally these are people who are familiar with publishing like myself and uh and you know as soon as you see someone else getting uh pushed out of a space that that is going to happen to you pretty damn soon especially when you're on the left when you're on the left that is you're the one with the uh um target on your back, so to speak. Now, a larger problem that Taibbi identifies, which is actually in the title of the piece, and it's uh, intellectual capture, which is a play on regulatory capture. You know, when a, when a regulation is caught, captured by industry, we call that regulatory capture. Now, Taibbi is identifying a, a, a new phenomenon called intellectual capture, And he says the larger problem with YouTube's action is that it relies upon those government guidelines, which in turn are significantly dependent upon information provided to them by pharmaceutical companies, which have a long track record of being less than forthright with the public. And so they, they talk about Tamiflu where the government spent a billion and a half dollars stockpiling Tamiflu, which uh, turned out, uh, didn't work. And then, uh, there were similar controversies involving Vioxx and the diabetes drug Avandia, um, As with financial services, military contracting, environmental protection, and other fields, the phenomena of regulatory capture is demonstrably real in the pharmaceutical world. And I think that this is pretty easy for people to imagine. Essentially, you have... uh, the government is 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 setting these moderation guidelines for YouTube. They are the ones who are saying CDC and WHO and uh, NHS etc are saying this is this is the way that we want you to talk about vaccines and this is the way that we want you to talk about COVID nineteen. And if there's pharmaceutical companies, if the if the if the governments are acting as a proxy for the pharmaceutical companies, then essentially you've got fascism. I mean, like it's, it's really not that much of, it doesn't take any imagination at all. You have the government actually cloaking a cloaking itself or rather you have a pharmaceutical company that is cloaking itself in the garb of the, uh, Government and so it has all of the force and all of the power of a federal government behind it and so it reaches through youtube with the government's uh protection and we can only say the things that the pharmaceutical company says that we can say um and the government backs that up with the full force of everything that they got there's it, it absolutely like A lot of First Amendment problems are hazy, and a lot of them are problematic, and a lot of them have all kinds of politics attached to them. This does not. This is very clearly not something that you want. This is not the way you want to abridge freedom of speech at all. And you really shouldn't want to abridge speech, period. But you especially don't want to abridge it like this, because what you're doing is you're saying that uh, any Any company that is doing business with the government, uh, then the government is going to interfere on their behalf to protect their reputation and abridge speech in a manner that is beneficial to that product, if you follow me. And when it comes to these agencies, these government agencies like the CDC and and the World Health Organization, they have hopped from one foot to the other. They've said that you should not wear masks because they wanted no one to buy masks so that... Uh, frontline workers could have masks but then they made sure that frontline workers couldn't have masks and then they said no you got to wear masks and then they said you got to wear two masks and then they said no you don't have to wear masks at all and then they said um Children should not be vaccinated at the moment, and then they said, uh, "But but the, these vaccines are suitable for use by people aged 12 years and above." And so everything has gone back and forth. It makes absolutely no sense to uh, to people who are out here trying to make sense of things. It, if you're out there trying to abridge their speech, what it looks like is. You just don't want your fuck-ups to be called out by the peanut gallery. That's what it looks like to me. And I think that that's what it's going to look like to most people. Now, definitely there are critics uh, of, of... the specifics of what Weinstein would say. And there are critics of the specifics of what, you know, people would say about Ivermectin and, and, and what people have to say about fluvoxamine and and so on and so forth. However, I don't think that anybody, if they were taking the Socratic path here, I want to say that I don't think that if people had all of the information in front of them, that they would want, the information kept from other people. But I know, I know that just having the information just having the data just having the knowledge actually isn't enough there are plenty of conflicts of interest there's plenty of people making money and it's just uh we have to have the rule of law behind us on this and on this independence day i think it's just as important as any other day but you know uh this is what i would like to focus on on 4th of July is you know what are our freedoms what do we have here in the United States that actually matters to us that is worth preserving because it's not fireworks it's not patriotism it's not you know all of these you know red white and blue kind of country music uh accoutrement that you're seeing on television and that you might be living this weekend what is important is how we are able to operate within the context of the United States and i think that that this case right here is critical to whether or not we are going to have a a space in which to talk about anything in the coming years. You know, right now we're talking about COVID, but maybe it's going to be climate change next year. And maybe after that, it's going to be, you know, the, the financial crash that we're having. Uh, so it's very important that, that we get very clear on this right now. So here's, here's, here's the thing on, on intellectual capture. If platforms like YouTube are basing speech regulation policies on government guidelines and government agencies demonstrably can be captured by industry, the potential exists for a brand new kind of capture, and that's intellectual capture, where corporate money can theoretically buy not just regulatory relief, but the broader preemption of public criticism. It's vaccines today, and that issue is important enough, but what if it's in the future the questions involve the performance of an expensive weapons program or a finance company contracted to administer bailout funds or health risks posed by a private polluter? You know, Taibbi talks about those things as if they're in the future, but we've actually dealt with all of those things in the past. The only difference has been that our speech hasn't been abridged Uh, accordingly, we have to be able to talk about these things that are affecting us. Otherwise, I would argue to you, we do not live in a free country. We do not have independence. Weinstein believes capture plays a role in his case at some level. He says, quote, it's the only thing that makes sense. He hopes the pressure from the public and from the media will push platforms like YouTube to reveal exactly how and with whom they settle upon their speech guidelines. Quote, there's something industrial strength about this censorship, he says, adding there needs to be a public campaign to reject it. And let me just state for the record right here that PNN stands behind uh, free speech. We stand behind the, the the principles that we've got to keep government and uh, private industry out of having a say on, on what we can talk about. We have to make sure that we make room for discussion so that we don't fall victim to groupthink and we don't fall victim to conflicts of interest. Because that's when we do very stupid things that hurt a lot of people all at the same time. So... This year, that is what Independence Day means to me. Um, And I hope that in the coming months and in the coming year, and as all of this develops, that it develops along the lines of freedom rather than along the lines of uh, authoritarian lockdown. And uh, we'll be right back with uh, Janine Maloff and the Justice Report. And we have Janine Maloff this week as the Gulf of Mexico has caught on fire and everyone is enjoying the uh, video of the Exxon lobbyist uh, exposing themselves uh, for everyone to see on social media. Janine is here to talk about how the fossil fuel industry it has blanketed us with uh, lies regarding the toxicity of their products. So, Janine, what do you got? This sounds
1: real interesting. Well, yeah, it, it is, actually. So it, it, this, this report's really two parts. Because the first part, we're going to talk about the lies and the criminal deception by the fossil fuel industry Uh, regarding the dangerous nature of their product and the fact that the fossil fuel industry is one of the major contributors to global warming and global climate devastation. Uh, And really the deceptions at a level rivaling that of the lies of big tobacco. It's that bad, it's that blatant. So this report's about corruption and it's not just your run-of-the-mill corruption, but blatant corruption. And, And at a runaway scale, both in the U.S. Congress, in the Oval Office of multiple presidents, as well as the fossil fuel industry boardrooms itself. So this story, it begins, as I said just a minute ago, with the history of lies and criminal deceit by the fossil fuel industry and their public relations slash lobbyist helpers. Uh, as well as their corporate attorneys, and again, at a level rivaling that of big tobacco. Let them wrap around your brains for a minute how absolutely vile this is. So we found out recently that for decades, multiple decades, the fossil fuel industry knew, they knew that their product was a major cause of eventual global warming. Uh, And for those same decades, the fossil fuel industry, with premeditation, lied about the nature of their product, claiming it was safe. Now, the Guardian newspaper, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, conducted a series of exposés on these lies and how they led to this crisis, which really is a crime against humanity. So that's the first part of this report. The second part of the report deals with, ironically, the unintended confession of a chief lobbyist, actually two of them, both uh, Mr. Keith McCoy, but also another one named Dan Easley. Now, McCoy's still in the employ, as far as I know, for ExxonMobil as the chief D.C. lobbyist. Mr. Easley left that employ several months ago, and ironically, I think I read he works for a clean energy uh, firm. He can't escape the irony of that. But anyway, so the second part of it deals with these videos, especially this one of Keith McCoy, and it's really an unintended confession um, he believes he's speaking to a headhunter, a recruitment headhunter, but in actuality, it's part of a sting that was conducted by, I believe it was Earth Justice, we'll get into it a little later, as well as Greenpeace, remember Greenpeace, who filmed the conversation. And Mr. McCoy names 11 U.S. senators, names them outrightly rightly, that he claims are, quote, on the hook to the fossil fuel industry, and that's part two. And then the conclusion is going to deal with, what I think is necessary action in the future. So let's go on with it. So from The Guardian, uh, again, they have this series, and I have this article, and it was written by Chris McGreal just last week, and the headline is, Big Oil and Gas Kept a Dirty Secret for Decades. Now they may pay the price. Okay, so this article deals with the fact that, in spite of all these, these lies, now, fossil fuel companies are facing lawsuits coming from uh, municipalities and states, and especially in Minnesota with, you know, Minnesota's AG, Keith uh, Keith Ellison, God bless him. So, basically, McGreal, the writer, is talking about how, you know, there's been a century of the fact that the fossil fuel industry has, you know, basically wielded extraordinary power, all right? We talked... Uh, last Just as last week on my other show, the environmental justice report about the, uh, the federal subsidies, tax subsidies that the fossil fuel industry receives and has received for 90 years without question. Okay, And one of the things we found out there was that if we took that money for those fossil fuel subsidies that are no longer legitimately needed, we could fund things like Medicare for all. We could fund a living wage. We could fund renewables, all of it. It's, it's that bad. But let's go on with this. So basically, fossil fuel industry, especially here in the United States, is facing a wave of lawsuits. And the idea is to hold fossil fuel oil and gas industry accountable for the environmental devastation caused by fossil fuels and covering up what they knew along the way, end quote and this is a central theme in today's report, this cover-up, these lies were very premeditated. This was systemic fraud on the part of the fossil fuel industry. You know, we see where basically cities on the coast in Florida, they're they're struggling to just keep those rising sea levels from destroying their homes. You've got Midwestern states, like where I live, where the right talks about mega rains. And it's true. I mean, my God, just last week, there was so much rain here in St. Louis, I said, God, Noah, come on, get the ark. It was that bad. I mean, um, you have fishing communities that are losing crops because the waters are too warm, and they're demanding that these the fossil fuel conglomerates pay damages and also reduce action to, uh, to further harm. But here's the thing. According to this article, quote, the nearly two dozen lawsuits are underpinned by accusations that the industry severely aggravated the environmental crisis with a decades long decades as in plural that is uh, decades-long campaign of lies and deceit to suppress warnings from their own scientists about the impact of fossil fuels on the climate and duke the American public end quote. And so that writer then quotes Bill McKibben you know from 350.org who basically characterized the behavior, the systemic behavior of the fossil fuel industry and their um, lobbyist friends as, quote, the most consequential cover-up in U.S. history. This has been going on for decades, as in multiple decades. So lawsuits are trying to hold them accountable. And climate activists are basically claiming that the systemic cover-up and lies and fraud committed by uh, the fossil fuel industry really rivals Big Tobacco's downfall after they Big Tobacco lied about the dangers of smoking and tobacco itself. So uh, the, this writer quoted Daniel Farber, who's a law professor at the University of Cur- California, Berkeley, Farber's also the director of the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment, and Farber was quoted as saying, quote, "We are at an inflection point. Things have to get worse for the oil companies, even if they've got a pretty good chance of winning the litigation. In places, the discovery of pretty clear-cut wrongdoing that they knew their product was bad and they were lying to the public really weakens the industry's ability to resist legislation and settlements." End quote. So, again, for decades. These oil and gas companies and coal, they understood the science of climate change. They understood the dangers that their products posed. Um, for years, top executives in that industry were told from their were told by their own scientists, scientists in the employ of big fossil fuel. And these scientists warned them that the effects of what they were doing was explicit and frequently dire. In 1979, there was an Exxon study, uh, and this was as documented by Europa.eu, Europe Parl. And this Exxon study from 1979 stated that burning fossil fuels, quote, will cause dramatic environmental effects in the coming decades, end quote. Um, The potential problem is great and urgent, according to the conclusion, end quote. Keep in mind, this came from an Exxon-sponsored study in 1979, okay? But they didn't listen. Instead, these big oil firms, big gas and the fossil fuel, they worked together to basically bury this information, the findings of studies that they paid for And they worked very hard to create what they call a counter narrative. The purpose of that was to undermine, quote, the growing scientific consensus around climate science, end quote. And when you talk about that, when you talk about you're trying to create a counter narrative to undermine what science is uncovering, yes, that is a conspiracy. That is practically the legal definition of the crime of conspiracy. Conspiracy to defraud, there's no guesswork here. So the fossil fuels industry to campaign, it paid off, all right? They really muddied up the understanding. Um, There was a draft United Nations report uh, that was leaked and it warned that the climate crisis has the following consequences quote, including rising seas, intense heat, and ecosystem collapse, and that it will fundamentally reshape life on Earth in the coming decades, even if fossil fuel emissions are curbed, end quote. Okay, that tells us something right there. The Guardian newspaper in Great Britain has launched a year-long series which is tracking, quote, the unprecedented efforts to hold the fossil fuel industry to account, end quote. Now, they know that this legal process is going to take years, uh, but there's going to be more revelations there, sure. And there have been some recent victories for climate activists. According to this last month, um, according to The Guardian, a Dutch court ordered Shell to cut global carbon emissions by 45% by the end of the decade. Okay. Um, That same day in Houston, There was an activist hedge fund that, quote, forced three new directors on the board of the U.S.'s largest oil firm, ExxonMobil, to address climate issues. And that was as documented by the Guardian as well. Um, Chevron has investors that voted to cut emissions, again, as documented by the Guardian, from the petroleum products it sells. And then earlier this month, uh, the developers of the Keystone Pipeline project, was they canceled it after more than 10 years of opposition over environmental concerns. I remember this, and um, there, there was a lawsuit brought by 21 young people in the United States who claimed the U.S. government violated their constitutional rights by, quote, exacerbating climate change. Um, the federal court threw the lawsuit out last year, but the Biden administration supposedly agreed to settlement talks. Um, you know, we'll see if that really happens. So because of all that, a lot of U.S. lawyers are saying that, um, even though this sounds good, the foreign court judgments probably won't carry much weight in the United States and that our domestic law is kind of a blank slate when it comes to this type of thing. I would disagree with that. I think they don't have to look any further than how they went after big tobacco. But let's talk some more about that. In 2018, there was a federal court, and basically what they did was they knocked back up. Oh, well, here, let me go back here. Okay. Apparently, New York City in 2018 made an attempt to force big oil to financially cover the cost of the climate crisis by claiming that, quote, it's, okay, basically, let me start again. All right. In 2018, New York City tried to force big oil to cover financially the cost of climate crisis. Um, They went to federal court, and the federal court, though, kicked it out because, get this, the judge claimed that, quote, uh, in terms of, the climate crisis the judge claimed that quote its global nature requires a political not legal remedy. Can you believe that judge said that? My question that judge is how does the federal judge how did the federal judge come to that crazy conclusion? Because you know if, if you agree with that argument if you agree that argument is true that the, the problems brought by the climate crisis caused by fossil fuels if you, if you agree that this requires a political, not a legal remedy, then nobody could ever sue a corporation for damages because a corporation could claim the remedy is political and not legal. Okay, talk about double top. But there are other regional lawsuits that are kind of going through the courts, Charleston, South Carolina, Boulder, Colorado, Maui, Hawaii. These are communities that are trying to force the industry to take some of their profits to pay for the damage and to make these energy companies treat the global climate crisis, you know, for basically the, what it is, which is an emergency, a global emergency. Um, Imperial Beach, California, which is the poorest city in San Diego County. Um, they have a budget, according to this writer, less than Exxon's chief executive annual pay. They face rising waters on three sides. And they don't have the funding for protective barriers. They're trying to recover the cost of repairing that damage and finding some sort of way to construct those barriers. Um, Honolulu, San Francisco, and Rhode Island are pushing what they call a public nuisance claim. Um, In 2019, Oklahoma's attorney general quote won compensation of nearly half a billion dollars against uh, Big Pharma's Johnson and Johnson over false marketing regarding. opioid painkillers and on the grounds that it created a public nuisance because it contributed to the opioid epidemic. So that's one theory. There are other climate lawsuits, especially one in Minnesota, you know, filed by uh, their AG, Keith Ellison, and they allege that the oil, quote, that the oil firm's campaigns of deception and denial about the climate crisis amount to fraud, quote, end quote, because it is. So Minnesota is suing Exxon. They're also suing Coke Industries and an industry trade group for what they call breaches of state law for, quote, deceptive trade practices, false advertising, and consumer fraud over what the lawsuit characterizes as distortions and lies about climate science, end quote. Okay? And in the lawsuit, their, Minnesota's AG, Keith Ellison, claimed that Quote, for years, Exxon orchestrated a campaign to bury the evidence of environmental damage caused by burning fossil fuels with disturbing success. Defendants spent millions on advertising and public relations because they understood that an accurate understanding of climate change would affect their ability to continue to earn profits by conducting business as usual, end quote, according to Ellison in that lawsuit. And Professor Farber from UC Berkeley Law School said that Cases that, that are rooted um, in these claims that the petroleum industry, industry you know, deceived and lied really have the best chance to succeed. Uh, according to Farber, quote, to the extent the plaintiffs can point to misconduct by telling everybody there's no such thing as climate change when your scientists have told you the opposite, that might give the courts a greater feeling of comfort they're not trying to take over the U.S. energy system, end quote. So they fought the facts. All the lawsuits are talking about that. There are claims that basically the fossil fuel industry covered up this growing threat to all life on Earth. That is directly caused by their products. And for decades, um, you know, these oil companies knew this. You know, they gave an example. Shell, for instance, um, had multiple decades to prepare after they were warned by their own research Okay, in 1958, one of Shell's executives, a man by the name of Charles Jones, um, presented a paper to the industry's trade group, the American Petroleum Institute. And Charles Jones warned about increased carbon emissions from car exhaust. Um, There was other research as well through the 1960s. There was a White House advisory committee to um, basically uh, talk about the concern that. there could be, quote, measurable, perhaps marked changes in climate by 2000. They were talking about this in the 1960s, okay? Now, the American petroleum industry, and I'll just call them API, their reports also flagged, quote, significant temperature changes, end quote, by the end of the 20th century. Largest oil company in the U.S., Exxon, they heard the same reports, the same concerns from their own researchers that they paid for. So for years, Exxon scientists recorded the evidence about burning, the dangers of burning fossil fuels. In 1978, James Black, who was a science advisor for Exxon, issued this warning. This was in 1978, that, quote, there was a window of five to ten years before the need for hard decisions regarding changes in energy strategy might become critical. That was their own scientist from Exxon in 1978. Now, Exxon did set up equipment on, <clears throat> on this super tanker named the Esso Atlantic, and it was to monitor carbon dioxide in seawater in the air. And again, in 1982, Exxon company scientists created this graph that plotted, quote, an increase in the globe's temperature to date. To quote from a 1982 internal Exxon document, quote, the 1980s revealed an established consensus among scientists. A 1982 internal Exxon document explicitly declares the science was unanimous and that climate change would bring about significant changes in the Earth's climate, end quote. And this is part of the evidence that is in the Minnesota lawsuit against Exxon. So the monitoring on that supertanker, the SO Atlantic, after that, night, after that report aired, that monitoring was suddenly canceled, and other research also downgraded or canceled. Talk about censoring your own scientists. So after that, what happened, um, according to Naomi Orestes, who's the co-author of the report, America Misled, she said that there was, quote, a system- systematic organized campaign by Exxon and other oil companies to sow doubt about the science and prevent meaningful action, end quote. That's fraud. That's intent to commit premeditated fraud right there. Um, the report, you know, basically, the report also accused energy companies not only that they were polluting the air and our environment, but also polluting what they called, quote, the information landscape, and quote, by replicating the cigarette maker's playbook of cherry picking data, using fake experts and promoting conspiracy theories to attack a growing scientific consensus. I'm going to say that again. That report made the following accusation that these energy companies not only polluted our environment, but also, quote, the information landscape by replicating the cigarette makers playbook of one, cherry cherry picking data, two, using fake experts, and three, promoting conspiracy theories to attack a growing scientific consensus. There's no guesswork here. Um, A lot of the lawsuits also um, draw information from Exxon documents that are at the University of Texas, but were uncovered. the Columbia Journalism School and the Los Angeles Times in 2015. Uh, There was a a series called Unsettled Science. Okay. Okay, no I'm sorry I take that back. The Unsettled Science was something that Exxon Mobil sent in. All right so in 1988 there was a memo by Exxon which created a strategy the idea was to push for quote a balanced scientific approach. Okay and the idea was that you would give equal weight to not only the hard evidence, and clim- but also equal weight between the hard evidence and what we now call climate change denialism. So again, the false equivalency arguments used, and they use it because they, the actual evidence is against them. The actual evidence renders their argument as utterly false. But unfortunately, because they were allowed by mainstream media to push this false equivalency to claim we're going to give equal weight to hard evidence and climate change denialism because they pushed that propaganda and mainstream corp- mainstream media didn't challenge it. it had its intended effect. In all right? So that basically now you see people in the US, usually the Republicans that are climate change denialist, okay? They just think that somehow, magically, this is all going to be okay. Um, And so the company, Exxon, also placed major ads. And these were in major American newspapers, including in the New York Times. The Times should not have accepted that ad. All right? And the headline for the ad was Unsettled Science. And it compared climate data, the consensus of climate data as settled science, to changing weather forecasts. And, and so, you know, that particular Unsettled Science ad claimed that the science wasn't settled, that it, the scientists were divided in terms of, of their opinions, and that there was, ironically, an overwhelming consensus that, um, you know, this wasn't the problem, okay? And, you know, Exxon lied. They knew they were lying, and again, the very definition of premeditated criminal fraud, so in 1996, you have, this is a long, long list of lies, okay? Um, you know, Lee Raymond, who was Exxon's chief, uh, chairman and chief exec told, exec, told industry execs in 96 that, quote, scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect global climate. It's a long, long and dangerous leap to conclude that we should, therefore, cut fossil fuel use, end quote. Except for one thing. The documents by Exxon's own scientists were telling Exxon management that the real danger was in the failure to do exactly that, wasn't the failure to stop using fossil fuels. Okay. In 2019, there was a professor of physics at New York University, Martin Holford. He spoke at a congressional hearing. (coughs) And he testified that as a consultant, an Exxon consultant on climate modeling in the 80s, that he worked uh, to help produce eight scientific papers for Exxon and that these papers showed that fossil fuel burning was, quote, increasingly having a perceptible influence on Earth's climate, end quote. Hoffert also said, quote, that he hoped that the work would help to persuade Exxon to invest in developing energy solutions the world needed end quote. All right, Hofford went on to say the following, quote, Exxon was publicly promoting views that its own scientists knew were wrong, and we knew that because we were the major group working on this. This was immoral and has greatly set back efforts to address climate change. They deliberately created doubt when internal research confirmed how serious the threat it was. As a result, in my opinion, homes and livelihoods will likely be destroyed and lives lost, end quote. That's damning right there. And this was for congressional testimony, congressional testimony in 2019. I know it was the Trump administration, but come on now. And nobody jumped on this, but it isn't just Exxon. It's the entire industry. And a lot of times what they and their lobbyists do is they work through the industry's trade body, which is API, the American Petroleum Institute. And that the and the American Petroleum Institute creates that they drew up what is a multi million dollar plan to ensure that quote climate change becomes a non issue through disinformation end quote and the plan went the API's plan went on to say that quote victory will be achieved when recognition of of uncertainties become part of the conventional wisdom end quote and. The thing is this fossil fuel industry, they contributed billions of dollars into political lobbying, also to block laws that were unfavorable to them, and to help fund these front organizations that have these neutral names, sometimes they're scientific sounding, like the Global Climate Coalition, which is pure nonsense. And here's an example. In 01, the U.S. State Department under George W. Bush told the Global Climate the Global Climate Coalition, that the reason W rejected the Kyoto Protocol to reduce greenhouse gas emissions was, quote, in part based on input from you, end quote. Okay, so it goes on and on and on. We've got more. Sharon Eubanks, uh, formerly of the U.S. Justice Department, um, from 2000, she led their legal team against nine tobacco firms and one of the largest civil cases filed under the RICO Act, which is the racketeer influence and corrupt organizations. And the RICO Act was was uh, created to combat organized crime because, basically, as the mafia and other forms of organized crime siphoned off funds to at least look legitimate, because they they basically money laundered into legitimate businesses. RICO was a way to trace that money laundering to see where it actually originated. Was it clean money or dirty money? And Eubanks found out she basically in 06, a federal judge um, discovered that the industry, fossil that the, I'm sorry, that the tobacco industry had spent decades, quote, committing a huge fraud on the American public by lying about the dangers of smoking and pushing cigarettes to young people, end quote. And so Eubanks, when she looked at the fossil fuel industry strategy, including API strategy, she said it came straight from Big Tobacco's playbook, and it did. And to quote Eubanks, quote, Big Oil was engaged in exactly the same type of behavior that the tobacco companies engaged in and were found liable for fraud on a massive scale. The cover-up, the denial of the program, the funding of scientists to question the science, the same pattern, and some of the same lawyers represent both tobacco and Big Oil. Okay. End quote. And, and the parallels between the two industries don't end there. Okay. Um, the, so it just goes on and on and on. All right. There's more there. Um, we're going to move on though, because we've been taking a lot of time. So you get the gist here. So now that we've discovered the deliberately fraudulent narrative created by the fossil fuel industry to protect profit while destroying the planet, there's even more evidence of systemic corruption. This time in the US Senate, oh, you know, no shock there. The, here's a story of basically two lobbyists, but first is the Exxon lobbyist, uh man by the name of Keith McCoy, who bragged in a conversation how incredibly easy it was, it has been to, you know, get favorable political treatment from various US senators, both Democrat and Republican alike. Now Decades ago, in another day, another period of time, this, and it was videotaped, this bombshell would have led to major ethics investigations, would have led to some Senate resignations. But now those senators named her, ignoring the story. But it's gained major steam in under a week. It went from um, this British uh, news media to Common Dreams, which is a small uh, blog, a small um, small publisher to Yahoo news. Then it was discussed by Cenk Uger and Anna Kasperian in, in just two days after on the young Turks. So this aired last Wednesday, this past Wednesday by Friday, the young Turks were talking about it and the Washington post did a story on it and several others. So here's what happened. Keith McCoy is one of the lobbyists and he is presently a senior director for ExxonMobil, their D.C. government affairs team. And he was recorded secretly by Unearthed, which is Greenpeace's U.K., which is basically the investigative journalism arm of Greenpeace in the U.K. Okay, so Unearthed did this. And so, you know, once again, you um, a 350.org campaigner made the following statement. We demand Congress immediately investigate Exxon and fossil fuel companies, climate crimes and make polluters pay for the destruction, end quote. So the recordings, um, this was published by On Earth, again, in UK, Greenpeace's investigative journalism arm. It was also aired by the British Channel 4 News. And the videos were obtained by Unearthed Reporters. They posed as recruitment consultants, as headhunters. And it features Keith McCoy. And it also features another lobbyist by the name of Dan Easley, who well, he no longer was with him, but was a senior director for federal relations. And then he left the company for a clean technologies firm earlier this year. Too ironic. Um, so basically, Lindsay Meeman, who is, 350.org's U.S. communications manager said, quote, in the midst of a deadly heat wave, the Exxon tapes show how Exxon climate lies and span from outright denial to puppeteering our government and economy. Exxon knew and lied about the climate crisis for decades, and our communities are bearing the cost. As the window for action quickly closes, as footage proves what we've known all along. Exxon continues to deliberately block necessary climate action to skirt accountability. We demand Congress immediately investigate Exxon and fossil fuel companies' climate crimes and make polluters pay for the destruction. End quote. So this was a Zoom call, okay? And so McCoy is bragging. He's in one of the he mentioned eleven senators that are really easy to deal with, and one of the senators was Joe Manchin. In fact, he said, "quote I talk to his office every week." And here's what McCoy had to say: Did quote Did we aggressively fight against some of the science? Yes. Did we hide our science? Absolutely not. Did we join some of these shadow groups to work against some of the early efforts? Yes, that's true, but there's nothing illegal about that. You know we were looking out for our investments, we were looking out for our shareholders, end quote. The problem is that actually participating in a cover-up and conspiracy to hide the truth that's resulted in massive global damage and lives lost is illegal. It's conspiracy. In fact, this is exactly the type of premeditated criminal activity that the RICO Act was supposed to combat. McCoy went on to say that, quote, we're playing defense because President Biden is talking about this big infrastructure package and he's going to pay for it by increasing corporate taxes. So it's a delicate balance. We're asking for help with taxes over here. And we're saying don't increase our taxes over there. He also suggested ExxonMobil's public support for a carbon tax, because ExxonMobil's gone on the record saying we support a public a carbon tax, is just, quote, quote an effective advocacy tool. Nobody is going to propose a tax on all Americans. And the cynical side of me says, yeah, we kind of know that. But it gives us a talking point that we can say, well, what is ExxonMobil for? Well, we're for a carbon tax. So he's, end quote, so he's admitting it's a big joke, it's a con. Now, Dan Easley was Exxon's lobbyist to Trump, just as McCoy is Exxon's lobbyist to Biden, Easley was Exxon's lobbyist to Trump, and he was, Dan Easley was Exxon Mobil's chief White House lobbyist for Trump, and Easley, quote, laughed when asked by an undercover reporter if the company achieved many big policy wins under Trump before outlining victories on fossil fuel, per, fossil fuel permitting and the rene- renegotiation of the NAFTA trade agreement, end quote, and that, that was reported by Unearthed. Easily was also quoted further by saying, quote, you should Google ExxonMobil announcement and Donald Trump. So he lied Facebooks from the West Wing, our big drill in the Gulf Project. He mentioned us in two states of the union. We were able to get investor state dispute settlement protection and NAFTA. We were able to rationalize the permit environmental, the permit environment and, you know, get tons of permits out. The wins are such that it would be difficult to categorize them all. I mean, tax has to be the biggest one, right? The reduction of the corporate rate was, you know, it was probably worth billions to Exxon. So, yeah, there were a lot of wins. Okay. Now, we have ExxonMobil chairman and chief executive officer Darren Woods, you know, who tried to issue a statement. They claimed it was an apology, but it really wasn't condemning the statements, but it's nonsense. Okay, um, Harvard's Jeff, Harvard University researcher Jeffrey Supran, who's published multiple scientific papers on this company's uh, work to mislead the public, um, claimed the video show that quote, ExxonMobil has been a bad faith actor on climate change for 30 years and still is. Um, and since 2017, there have been 26 US state and local governments that have filed lawsuits Against major fossil fuel companies because they deceive the public. And this and this is according to the Center for Climate Integrity. And the Center for Climate Integrity's executive director, a man named Richard Wilde, said this past Wednesday that, quote, this bombshell recording confirms yet again that Exxon Mobil simply cannot be trusted by policymakers. They lie about climate science and their products role on the climate crisis. They lie about their commitment to climate solutions and they lie to protect their bottom line with no regard for the catastrophic damage the products continue to cause to our planet and everyone on it. It's time for members of Congress to stop doing the bidding of oil and gas lobbyists and executives who have no interest in solving the climate crisis and instead hold them accountable. End quote. Now keep in mind, there were massive protests in DC this past week, 500 groups uh, environmental groups converged, they went in front of the White House, and then especially, um, you know, from, from all sorts of different groups, and these young people were arrested, so much for Biden's commitment, okay? And so, basically now, we have, um, you know, we have a question here, Fossil Fruit Fuel Media Director Jamie Hen focused on the infrastructure legislation because when McCoy bragged about how he had 11 senators on the hook, some of these are some of the same senators that are on that bipartisan infrastructure committee. Okay, and he goes, quote, if you've been wondering who was to blame for putting Biden's climate agenda on life support, we know now ExxonMobil. The recordings help clarify the battle lines for the next round of infrastructure negotiations. This is going to be a showdown between Exxon and the American people. And the question for President Biden and members of Congress is whose side are you on? It isn't a coincidence that many of Exxon's key senators are the ones that supported the the bipartisan infrastructure package instead of an actual plan to tackle the climate crisis. They're doing exactly what Exxon asked protect the company's profits at all costs. President Biden needs to show us he's not Exxon's puppet. President Biden needs to show us he's not Exxon's puppet by putting climate back at the heart of his agenda. And, you know, keep in mind, all right? um, If the bipartisan infrastructure plan, which is connected to this, goes through and quite a bit of the public infrastructure, especially the power grid, becomes privatized, then we have even less of an opportunity to go after them. Okay, very convenient. And so in case you're wondering who those senators are that are on the hook, okay, Mr. McCoy, he compared um, basically his work with with U.S. senators to fishing. Okay, ExxonMobil supplies the bait, and then they reel in the senator, on issues like a carbon tax, taxation infrastructure, et cetera. To quote Mr. McCoy, quote, when you have an opportunity to talk to a member of Congress, I like it it to fishing, right? You know you have bait, you throw that bait out, and they say, oh, you want to talk about infrastructure? Yeah. And then you start to reel them in, and you start to have those conversations about federal leasing programs. You start having these conversations about a carbon tax. You know it's all these opportunities that you use to use the fishing analogy, again, just to kind of reel them in. I make sure I get the right. I get them the right information that they need so they look good, and then they help me out. They're a captive audience. They know they need you, and I need them. You want to be able to go to the chief and say, we need congressman so-and-so to be able to I- either introduce this bill, we need him to make a floor statement, we need him to send a letter, you name it, we've asked for everything he said. And, apparent, and, quote, and apparently, according to McCoy, they get him. And here are the 11 U.S. senators on the hook, both Democrat and Republican alike. Senator Shelley Moore Capito, John Tester, Maggie Hassan, John Barrasso, John Cornyn, Steve Daines, Chris Coons, the president's best friend, Mark Kelly, Marco Rubio, and my two favorites, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. And Joe Manchin's the main ringleader. These are all some of the same people on that bipartisan infrastructure committee. Okay, and McCoy did confess. <clears throat> They don't, that basically the the fossil fuel industry doesn't want to look like they're the bad guys. To hear him, he quote says, quote, we don't want it to be us to have those, these conversations, especially in a hearing. It's getting our associations. In other words, the American Petroleum Institute is what he's alluding to. It's getting our associations like the API to step in and have those conversations and answer those tough questions and be for the lack of a better term, the whipping boy for some of these members of Congress. There was something we were working on earlier this week where we where our CEO was invited to a hearing from a member of Congress who we know is just going to rip him to shreds when he goes there. So we look at him and we say, Well, why us? He asked. And so they just let API do it for him. Keep in mind, um, this is something we have another article from Dave Turnbull from Oil Change International, again talking about you know, these videos, all right? We're basically McCoy and Easley are both implying that not only a series of U.S. presidents, but specifically named U.S. senators, both Democrat and Republican, implying that they are on the take for bribes, period. And it's enough there. If a similar accusation were made against you or I, we would already be criminally charged. And then they would actually, you know, basically, at the very least, investigate and then charge criminally. And so what we have to do now is realize these U.S. senators, as well as a series of presidents, they um, bank on the idea that they have basically qualified immunity, once again, from criminal prosecution. But that's not quite true. What the Constitution actually says is that presidents and members of Congress They do have have qualified immunity, except in cases of treason or in cases where they basically broke their oath of office or in cases of felony. And guess what? Premeditated fraud that results in definite damage, damage to human life, animal life, damage to the planet. Yes, those are felonies. They are not immune from this okay and when we go on again besides those videos the american petroleum industry has been basically distorting reality for their clients like ExxonMobil and several others by using the following um, the following techniques one they use bad data and deception um, they also uh, you know they also use um, they also cl- they also use research that claims that renewable energy causes more emission re- um, I'm sorry. Let me take that back. So they use bad data and deception. They also um, use additional deceptive messaging. Um, they feature carbon capture, which is really false hope. Okay, because carbon capture isn't really viable. They're they're ba- they're pushing a technology that um, hasn't really been completed, and we talked about that on another show. Okay. Um, Exxon's uh, Keith McCoy also says that Exxon's views on fossil gas is like it is it's a bridge fuel before we get to renewables Um, but that's not true okay they're they have no intention they want to keep this fossil fuel going as forever fuel and um, you know again you've got Dan Easley who's bragging about uh, how easily it was to work with Trump and his administration to get preferential tax treatment, you know, in, you know including subsidies, which again hurts us. Um, and you know again, we have these eleven senators, Democrat and Republican alike that should face at the very least, you know, an ethics investigation. In fact, every senator listed there while they do have their right in court, they should face a major ethics investigation. They should, every single one of them should be removed from committees, stripped of their committee assignments. Joe Manchin is committee chair. He should be stripped of his chairmanship, just like Marjorie Taylor Greene was stripped of her committees. No difference is Democrat, Republican alike. And I despise Marjorie Taylor Greene, but, you know, the rules are the rules. And keep in mind, this Exxon lobbying scandal, it's spreading. It went from a couple of small outfits to now it's actually been reported not only by the New York Times and the Washington Post. And the Young Turks, but the Wall Street Journal, Politico, Bloomberg, Guardian, Newsweek, and even Fox. Okay? Even Fox, because the evidence is that damning from these particular videos. So conclusion now. We've talked about both sides of this. Now we need to implement a plan of action which not only punishes the guilty, but we're gonna we have to try and save as much of this planet as we can. So, in my opinion, this plan has to include the following things. First of all, we need a truth and reconciliation commission with full subpoena power to investigate the fossil fuel industry and and any public relations or lobbying groups that assisted in this mass deception and any politicians who aided and embedded what can only be called this crime against humanity. We need an immediate cessation of any and all tax subsidies, both direct payments and indirect subsidies in the form of tax breaks and other fiscal contrivances that the fossil fuel industry has previously received. It also needs to be an immediate cessation of any and all of these tax subsidies uh, that went to any banking or financial institutions connected to the industry. Three, we need all those immediate subsidies that went to the fossil fuel industry and the and the financial institutions that invested in them, we need those subsidies to transfer to proven renewable energy sources like wind and solar as directed by independent scientists and fully reported to the public. Four, we need a full criminal investigation and, yes, criminal prosecution, including mandatory incarceration for any politician who aided and abetted. We need full criminal investigation and criminal prosecution, including mandatory incarceration for any lobbyist or public relations firm or any corporate attorney that knowingly went along with this who aided and abetted while corporate attorneys, like any attorney has a right to, to defend their client. They also have a duty to report any wrongdoing, any lies that the client presented in court. We also need funding for renewable energy that will come from the previous subsidies received by fossil fuel and those banks, private equity firms, et cetera, connected with it. So every American, no matter low income or what, can transfer from fossil fuel to clean air renewables at no cost to them. We need those who profited from fossil fuel in this mass deception. They should have their assets seized, just like a drug dealer, via, via the RICO Act. And this includes U.S. presidents, congressmen, and senators, no exceptions. And finally, the mass deception committed by the fossil fuel industry is part of a crime against humanity, and it has to be reported as such to the United Nations. And finally, the United States needs to join the International Criminal Court and work together. Because this isn't just about us anymore. It's about future generations who deserve a planet that they can live on. And that's
0: my report. And that's it for us this week. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you again next week.